Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. of November, um, at some level, the year is flying by, and another, uh, at another level, it feels like this is the year that will never end, um, but it will. This year will come to an end, and we will find our way through it. We are in the month of Thanksgiving, and we are sneaking up on the holiday itself. I want you to be considering today your own personal attitude of gratitude, um, particularly as we survey headlines, uh, many of which might lead a person to despair, but, you know, that's not who we are. And we recognize that God is ultimately in control. He is sovereign. He is gracious. He is good. That's the the reality in which we live. Even though the circumstances of life um, often bear witness more to the fallen nature of reality than they do to the goodness of God's creation um, and his providential care. So, um, here's a here's an interesting. It, this is not a headline that is. Uh, this is a headline that is neither good nor bad. This is um, uh, this is a headline that uh, is worthy of talking about, though. Um, SpaceX. So we're talking about a private company that launched a flight to the International Space Station, carrying four astronauts. So you could think of this as a very expensive taxi, ferrying astronauts to work uh, on the International Space Station, and. I think this is an opportunity for us to talk about the way that private companies are now doing what only nation states used to be big enough to do and powerful enough to do. And now we have uh, nations, uh, in this case the United States and Japan, paying a uh, a private company, in this case SpaceX, I think it was like $16 million a seat uh, for a ride to the International Space Station. I don't know. I might That might be grossly underpriced there. I might... I might be uh, fabricating information at that particular moment. 16-something. I don't know. We'll we'll look that up. Um, Here is news that uh, is probably not going to be covered because the headline news in the United States um, tends to not focus terribly far south into Central America. Hurricane Iota is rapidly strengthening. It is approaching the Central American coastline. It's expected to make landfall tonight. It is expected to be a dangerous Category 4 storm. Um, it will be life-threatening. There will be storm surge, and we are talking here about the coastlines of Nicaragua and Honduras, which uh, is the same place that Hurricane Ada made landfall as a category storm just uh, a couple of weeks ago. So Hurricane Iota now surging toward the Central American coastline. We are um, we're going to lead off this morning with conversations with Dr. Zach Jenkins. Um, here's the uh, here's the headline news of the day related to the COVID virus. Uh, there are uh, there were yesterday 120,601 new cases, 1,021 deaths in the United States yesterday. Um, that death toll has climbed nearly 30 percent over the past two weeks. Cities and states across the country are tightening their restrictions. Um, Chicago uh, had a stay-at-home rule, which is now followed by 
near lockdowns in New Mexico, Oregon, Washington State, California, Oregon, Washington, all want out-of-state travelers to quarantine. Uh, New York City bars and restaurants are closing at 10 p.m. Um, and North Dakota, which uh, which had been really wide open, is now um, leading the United States in recent infections per capita. And so they are ordering bars and restaurants to limit capacity. We're going to talk about all of this and more related to COVID, COVID-19, our coronavirus headline weekly update with Dr. Zach Jenkins. That's next here on Mornings with Carmen. It's good to have you back again. Oh, hey, Because he is faithful, ever faithful, uh, Dr. Zach Jenkins is back again today from Cedarville University. Zach, I have to admit that when we invited you to do this on a regular basis, di- basis during the COVID-19 pandemic, I, I just have to admit, I didn't think we'd still be doing it in mid-November. Yeah, I know. It's it's been a wild ride, that's for sure. So sometimes when you make a commitment to Mornings with Carmen, it is a bigger commitment than you ever dreamed. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for getting up every morning and doing what you do on the front lines of this pandemic and for joining us every Monday. We really uh, do appreciate it. All right, here were uh, three headlines I read this morning. A million new cases in six days. Uh, coronavirus now a rural threat. And in a conversation um, about why we are seeing a record rise in COVID-19, the U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams saying on NPR um, over the weekend, uh, pandemic fatigue, he believes, is the number one reason. Start anywhere you want um, in our COVID headlines today, um, and let's just wander around and what's going on. Yeah, you know, I think pandemic fatigue is is a good way to put that. I've used some pretty similar terminology before to describe what's going on. the, the lockdowns have been have been rough. Uh, the, you know, this has been a very challenging year uh, from an, a political perspective, from a social perspective. Um, and then when you add the economics on top of that and then just the, the stress that the lockdowns that we, we know have caused, we know it's, you know, it's contributed to anxiety, to depression, to increased rates of suicide, all sorts of things. Um, I, I think it really creates that situation where people are just tired of it all and they want it to stop. So people are trying to figure out how to live their lives. And as a result, I think some of the things that we would encourage people to avoid are happening. Um, that, that I think is a driver for sure. So we have, um, you know, this impact on hospitals, obviously as cases rise and then those who need to be hospitals hospitalized, those, um, you know, the incidents of experiencing um, symptoms that require hospitalization we are having we're seeing a real impact on hospitals. I think that when we start talking about rural spread and places in the United States of America where there are not, you know, lots of hospitals because frankly there aren't lots of people. Um that's where we start getting to the place where we were all frankly worried at the very beginning of all of this. Talk a little bit about um the impact on hospitals and healthcare workers and and even their families. Well, you know, I'll give you a personal example. So just this past weekend, uh, my, my brother-in-law, who's a nurse anesthetist, he was actually in the operating room um, working on a, on a patient. He ended up having some chest pain and passing out. Turns out he had coronavirus. And the patient and every other medical staff member in that room, they now are under are under uh, quarantine. 
my brother-in-law got hospitalized. So I, I think, you know, you have a definite risk that you run when you are a frontline healthcare worker um, in these situations. Either you carry it in with you or you acquire it when you're in these facilities. On top of that, I think the other the other stressor right now is because of all the financial implications of COVID, um, especially for ho- hospital systems, as we kind of talked about before, people are trying to do more and more with less and less. And so it's putting a lot of burden on a lot of these medical professionals simply because they, they don't necessarily have all the time, effort, and energy to constantly expend on fighting this pandemic. Okay, Zach, it occurs to me that it's, um, you know, like 10 days till Thanksgiving, maybe nine days. What is, what's maybe one or two tangible things that uh, that each of one, uh, one of us that's listening right now that's not a frontline healthcare worker? So we don't really know what, um, what you are dealing with and your family is dealing with every day. What might be one or two tangible ways that we could express our gratitude um, during this Thanksgiving season? That, that's a really good question. Um, what would I your wife probably... appreciate? <laughs> Let's do that. Well, that, that's, that's a good question. You know, I think uh, for, for a lot of these, these individuals, as, as they're kind of going in every day, it, it's almost um, in some ways for some, some of them, it's a little bit thankless sometimes um, because some of the things that they're doing aren't necessarily always known. Mm-hmm. Um, they go in and, and I'm sure a lot of people have had this in their places of employment as well. You, you have a lot of hospital administrators or, you know, management will say that saying you guys are the heroes and that sort of thing. But then when you're being asked to do a lot, you don't necessarily have all those resources and the pressure is always there. You don't always feel like that. So I, I think just those those notes of encouragement doesn't necessarily have to be a written note, but just anything verbal. Um, little written notes are helpful too to just encourage people to continue doing what they do and that it is appreciated. Um, They don't always necessarily hear that. And maybe it's not always when it comes across, it's not always coming across as authentic. So I think that's Mm. probably a really important way to approach the situation. All right. So just to simply be expressing verbally and, and in writing, we appreciate you. We know you're doing more with less for longer than expected. We recognize the sacrifice we're making. We you're making, we see you, um, you know, thank you. Simple, simple expressions of, of gratitude toward those frontline healthcare workers um, and their families. Let's uh, let's remember them as well. Obviously, we need to be praying for. I have a, a list of people in my congregation who serve um, as uh, healthcare workers in a variety of of spaces and places um, and the names of their family members. And so maybe you could go and get that from your church as well and just say, I want to be, I want to be praying for my brothers and sisters who are on the front lines of this. uh, And I want to be letting them know that I appreciate them uh, for what they're doing each and every day. I know we have um, some healthcare workers listening right now because they listen on their drive into work. So Jane, we see you, we, we appreciate you. We love you. Um, We recognize the sacrifice that you're making each and every day. Um, and, and I would just say that to you as well, Zach, and, um, and ask that you would pass that along to others. Hey, we got to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, the impact of COVID on the upcoming holiday season. And we are going to talk about Thanksgiving plans. Right now, I'm scheduled to have 19 people at my house. I'm going to ask Zach about that. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We need a strong God. Yeah. We need the real Continue my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. You can follow him 
on Twitter at Farm D Hiker. Um, Zach, let's uh, let's talk about the upcoming holiday season. I mean, we're getting lots of um, <clears throat> encouragement to not gather in large groups as families on Thanksgiving Day or over the Thanksgiving uh, holiday weekend. Currently, currently, because, you know, we have six kids and four of them are married and two of them have kids, there are scheduled to be 19 people at my house for dinner on Thanksgiving. Uh, so you could just speak into that, doctor. You know, it's, it's a it's a really tough situation um, on the personal side of things. My my grandmother passed away in May of this mm. year, and my grandfather now. Um, what we're trying to figure out is how can we make this work w- with him. Um, mm-hmm. He's in his late eighties, so he's definitely and, and he has some comorbidities that puts him in a really high risk category. Um, so so with all that in mind, I, I just want to I want to comment that I I definitely feel and understand the very personal side of this. Mm-hmm. Um. But I mean, there there is certainly added risk, and, and I think what we have to also kind of consider is what can we do to mitigate that. Some places we have ordinances that that require us, um, you know, from what we've been told in Romans, you know, we have we have certain ways we we're supposed to kind of act with these things. Um, so so they may require us to not necessarily meet in some of the larger gatherings that we would like. But in places where we don't have those ordinances, I think the big thing to kind of think about is if you're going to meet, how can you mitigate risk? So testing is becoming more available. A lot of pharmacies are starting to carry tests. Um, There are a lot of public health departments that will offer tests. That might be one way to try to at least minimize the chance of exposing people that are around you that are at risk in these larger gatherings. Um, I, I think another thing that you could kind of consider is just making sure that if you're feeling any any little bit sick, even if you have like a runny nose and that's it, mm-hmm. um, it'd be it'd be a good idea to stay home at that point. Um, that could easily be COVID. It could be a mild case or it could turn into something a little bit more serious. Um, the other thing that I think we could also think about where we can is, is it possible to limit some of these gatherings or, or stagger them so or, or, or even reduce the length? So maybe the risk of exposure is not quite as high. Yeah, I appreciate that. And thank you for the the reminder of the loss in your own family. I mean, I, that is repeated now, um, you know, a million times. Like it's we're talking about a lot of people who um, have this shared experience, not just of having had the coronavirus, but of having lost someone um, uh, who has been affected by it. I, I do think that there is particularly in rural communities and I live in a rural community there's a bit of a there continues to be a bit of a cavalier attitude toward this talk talk to those people living in rural communities today um when we're looking at the rise in rural environments i just think that um not everybody has been paying attention to the reality of this in the same way you know i i think the big issue is it's been slowly moving into some of those areas and, and different parts of the country have been exposed to to different rates um, so, so because of that, a lot of this is delayed. But, I mean, in the past two weeks, I have had three or four personal experiences with COVID, and before I knew people far more distant than me um, that that were having it. So, I, I'm in more of a rural part of the state I'm in, um, and I'm certainly seeing an uptick this direction. One of the challenges I think we face, though, is due to the, some of the financial issues that some of these smaller hospitals in rural areas have run into. Some of the resources that they have are not necessarily there. Some are risk at risk of closing. Um, some of them have had to let off significant amounts of staff or lay, lay off significant amounts of staff. 
Um, so, so the risk of causing a lot of strain to those different hospitals, I think, is very high um, as time kind of progresses here. And we're expecting some of these areas are going to get a lot better before, or a lot worse before they get better. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's the thing I would just kind of say is, you know, your local area may not always have those resources. So be cautious is the best way I could put that. All right. And then in this sort of, you know, be cautious and you may not even know you've had it or you certainly may not know that those around you have it, the asymptomatic sort of younger, healthy crowd. Um, I read this headline uh, in in the conversation. Uh, Even if you're asymptomatic, COVID-19 can harm your heart, study shows. And here's what student athletes need to know. Um, there's some there's some stuff that is happening that people are not even aware of because they don't even know they have COVID because they're asymptomatic. Talk, talk a little bit about um, what we are learning about long-term effects to people who don't even know they ever had the virus. So there, there have been some case reports over time of uh, people having some lung damage from COVID and not even realizing it. So their, their lung function is not necessarily as... Um, I guess, comprehensive as it was before. They lose just Mm -hmm. a little bit of that lung function. Um, The the same might be true for the heart. Um, One thing I know that the article you're referencing discusses is um, myocarditis and pericarditis, which is inflammation um, basically around the heart or in the heart. And in the case of uh, pericarditis, you won't always feel that if it's mild. But over time, what happens is it makes it much harder for your heart to beat. And that, in turn, can cause a lot of um, systemic problems down the road. So people that are athletic, obviously, they're, they're in great shape. But all of a sudden, when you're fighting against a lot of resistance with your heart, it puts a lot of strain on your body if you have a really high demand of oxygen. Mm. Um, so that, that can cause some significant issues. So those are, those are some things we're learning. I, I know recently we've also learned about 20% of people um, that actually have COVID seem to have a, a higher risk of a lot of psychiatric illnesses, um, things like anxiety and depression. And part of that is it seems like the virus affects the frontal lobe of your brain. Mm. And we're not really sure exactly what it's doing there 100%, but it seems like that's the area that it might be influencing. Um, But it doesn't necessarily do that in every person. Okay, that, um, yeah, now you're just scaring me. Okay, so... um... I know that's not what we're that's not why we're doing this. We're doing this so that we have an awareness of just how serious um, this virus is and that we are still learning about it. This is still new. Uh, And I think that, you know, when we talk about the fatigue of it in the culture and we talk about there's a vaccine, it's right on the horizon. Um, There are you know additional vaccines on the horizon. There are increasingly effective treatments. This is still something that you want to avoid getting, if at all possible, because we don't know all of the impacts and effects. And you certainly don't know in your own life what the impacts and effects are going to be. So still want to really be encouraging people to follow the guidelines, follow the recommendations, wash your hands, wear a mask, practice social distancing. If you can't do any of those things, then then don't go wherever it is that those things can't happen. So I just, you know, I just want to be of encouragement to people to like be be as wise as possible in the midst of this. We recognize a lot of people are going to get the coronavirus and there is a vaccine on the horizon, maybe many of them. Um, and whether or not people want to get the vaccine is going to be a whole nother conversation that we're going to have. Um, we got weeks to talk about vaccines, um, Zach. So let's set that off for just a minute. 
Um, I sure. I will I will confess to you that one conversation that keeps coming up in the environments that I am in, um, you know, are yeah, we know a lot of people who've had COVID, but we don't necessarily know a lot of people other than maybe the most elderly folks in in our cohort um, who have succumbed. But the impacts and effects of the coronavirus are not just that people are dying. There are these other long-term effects. And there are some people who have actually the uh, symptoms of COVID for a very long time. It's not something that you just you get and you necessarily just get over. Can you just describe to us maybe one of those cases where you're seeing somebody who is actually suffering with COVID for a fairly long period of time? So, I, I mean, on a personal note, my, my mother about a month ago had COVID and she now is still on occasion just becoming very short of breath and it's mm-hmm. almost inexplicable. She'll just be um, kind of walking around in the kitchen, for example, on like a level surface and she'll just start to be short of breath. Um, and there, there's certainly a lot of cases out there like that where people have gotten over COVID and they have those residual symptoms that can last in some cases for weeks. Um, there are reports of up to 90 days in other cases. Um, so I think that that's certainly an issue. We know that this also causes microvascular clotting. And for those those rare patients that do get hospitalized, that the 20% of people that do get hospitalized, if they have something like a stroke, that can cause some long-term damage as well. Mm-hmm. So, so I think we have to kind of at least be aware that that uh, yeah, you can get sick and it may seem mild, but some some of this there may be some subtle effects that we aren't always aware of at first that we kind of experience on the back end. Zach, as always, um, thank you so much. We look forward to talking with you um, again. Uh, and you know, I'm I'm hoping that 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 sort of light at the end of the tunnel is at least in view. Um, so maybe we start pivoting our, our conversation. Um, to vaccine and particularly some very, very interesting conversations about vaccine distribution, not only here in the United States, but maybe around the world. Let's have that conver- let's let's tee that conversation up for next week. Sound good? Sounds great. Thanks, brother. All right, that is Dr. Zach Jenkins at Cedarville University. You can follow him on Twitter at Farm D Hiker Farm like Pharmacy. All right, we'll be right back. Okay, so we can talk about uh, 100 days. Over the weekend, we had uh, lots of news rolling out about what a Biden presidency, a Biden administration would seek to do in the first 100 days. If you are wondering how many days are left to the inauguration of the 46th president of the United States, that would be 65 days. So the countdown timer uh, in terms of the first um Trump presidency, you know, the countdown timer on that is 65 days. The president of the United States has a an agenda planned for those 65 days. Um, and there are still election conversations going on and a legal fight underway in states across the country. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College and I are going to talk about all of that up next. When it comes to our digital lives, privacy is a big issue. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Adults know the importance of keeping our bank accounts, our passwords, and our emails secure. But for moms and dads with teens under their roof, privacy takes on a new look. How much latitude do we allow teens on the computer and with their smartphones? Are parents supposed to pry? Okay, a few hints. First, determine what you will or won't allow in your home. 
When it comes to online behavior, make the boundaries age-appropriate. Then communicate your expectations and stand by your consequences. If you need to, monitor Facebook or text. Privacy is a luxury, but an involved parent is essential. Want to bring Mark to your church or community? Find out how to request an event in your area when you visit parentingtodaysteens.org. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. We're going to talk all things, oh, we can't talk about all things uh, political or election cycle, but that's what we're going to try to do. Adam, welcome back. We'll see how quick we can move then. Okay. Um, Election postmortem. First of all, let's just be be reminded, what is an election postmortem and what's happening in this year's election postmortem already? Right. That's become a phrase for taking stock of after I mean that's supposed to be after right it's supposed death. to be after it's dead I know and but this yes. is the election that will never die yes <sighs> yes uh, what well, thank you 2020 that that this is the night of the living election no <laughs> it, it 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 yeah that and typically what uh, postmortems are meant to be is taking stock of what really happened uh, what we can learn from it what we should take from it often political parties do this. And so that that's usually what the phrase phrase means. And we're still trying to get the dust settling here. Obviously, we're, we're still trying to uh, figure out all the legal litigation, although those seem to not be going very far. It still seems like Joe Biden's going to be elected president. We're still figuring out how slim the, the Democratic majority in the House is going to be. It looks like it's going to be very thin. Republicans did very, very well. And so what... Um, what the, the 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 right is trying to figure out as the postmortem is what does the Republican Party look at like after President Trump and what are they going to take with them? What might they leave behind? And for the left, uh, who really thought they were going to do much better this election, they're really trying to figure out uh, is is the way we were trying to build a party. Uh, really going to work. They didn't do as well with Hispanic voters and and Latino voters as they thought, or with African-American men. They didn't dominate the suburbs to the degree they thought. And so they're really trying to figure out what does our party look like? We kind of thought that Joe Biden was a transition to the real new majority that was going to look more like a Kamala Harris uh, majority, but it's not. Uh, It seems like he was able to pull together a majority that no one else could. So those are some of the early things that are that both parties are trying to figure out. What does their future look like now that we've really counted votes and the results don't look like what the polls or even what both sides necessarily thought was going to happen. We are going to, you and I are going to have to have in the future a conversation about demography determines destiny. Um, I will admit to you, not a phrase I was particularly familiar with, but I have come, I have, uh, I'm up to speed on it now. Um, When people are going to hear that in the headline news, demography determines destiny, um, what's the context in which they're going to hear it? And then maybe in a few weeks, we can circle back around to this um, when these postmortems are a little more fully developed. Exactly. Uh, they the what demography uh, is destiny. That phrase basically means if you can tell 
what a group of people, a subset of the American population, whether it's race, whether it's economic class, whether it's religious adherence, whatever the the the, the setup, if you can tell what they which way they're tr- they've been trending historically, Democrat or Republican, conservative, liberal, then all you have to figure out is what groups are growing larger and what groups are growing smaller. And so the, the idea was college-educated voters are getting bigger and they're going Democrat. The uh, country is getting more racially diverse and people who are not white tend to vote overwhelmingly Democrat. And um, so the idea was there was an emerging Democratic majority out of the parts of the country that are growing quicker as opposed to those that are not. And uh, we still need to, you know, get a little, little more of the dust and smoke clear. But that's really being challenged, as as it has been in the past. Maybe later we can get into how those haven't always proven true historically. But what it's really showing is we need to be very aware that human beings can have their minds changed. They can be convinced. Uh, one generation isn't exactly like the the, the rest. And um, I think in some ways that's a good thing. That might mean that we might not have to see each other purely by construct, purely by identities, but we might have to actually get to know each other a little better politically, not just socially and neighborly. Amen. Um, all right, Adam, let's uh, let's talk about the the confirmation that this election brings to the power of divided government. Yes, we are going to continue to have divided government. A Praise Jesus. Demo- a Democrat House narrowly, very narrowly, a very narrowly Republican Senate and 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 President Biden, who probably won the most decisive of any of those victories. And it wasn't over. It was it was no by no means a landslide. So the 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 what we're going to have to ask is for the last 20 years, uh, 25 years, really divided government has been the norm. We have tended to elect uh, a president that is different than at least one, if not both chambers of Congress. And I think two things we have to think about that is, uh, one, the, the advantage of that is that we, with divided government, there can be checks and balances. There has to be something that gets at least some ele- for something to get passed, it has to have some element of bipartisan consensus to go through. Um, that can also create gridlock when you need action. And what the hope is, is that eventually times of gridlock, and we've had extended times of gridlock in the past, that uh, times of gridlock can can help Americans assess the directions they want to go. And ho- hopefully, I'm not going to say we're, we can count on this, but start to force the parties to adjust and look for common ground that allow them to do things that might be not exactly what the party orthodoxy is, but is something that the American people as a whole can get can get behind. Uh, we'll see. It's going to really test what kind of politicians Joe Biden is, what kind of politicians some of the rising stars in the Republican Party are. So we're going to. So so the, the the good middle is you find common ground and check excesses. The bad middle ground is that you can't get anything done. We'll see. Uh, we've tended more toward the not getting anything done. We'll see if that starts to break any. I think that should be the hope and prayer if you're going to pray specifically for leaders going forward is, can they start to break that ice in a way that is uh, uh, bipartisan? We'll have to see. All right. I'm talking with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. We've got to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to um, 
We're going to acknowledge that the Supreme Court of the United States is looking again at the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. That is going to be up next. And before I let him go today, um, I'm going to ask him to comment on Thanksgiving, uh, the history of Thanksgiving and um, Thanksgiving this year. All right. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Uh, he tweets at A.M. Carrington. Adam, let's uh, let's talk about what is going on in the Supreme Court of the United States, specifically in relationship to the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. Well, you were saying elections won't end, and it seems like legal challenges to the Affordable Care Act won't end either. And this one that has just come up before the court, it takes a second to at least explain the background history. Uh, I think readers that follow these things or listeners that follow these things will, will remember reading uh, the that in uh, that the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate and the whole law was originally saved from being struck down because John Roberts, uh, the chief justice, said that it was that the individual mandate was a tax, not a regulation. So that's important to know. The next piece of information is to know that in 2017, when the Republican Party passed its tax cut bill, it reduced the penalty in the individual mandate. So if you don't buy health insurance, you pay a penalty to zero. So what's happened is a group of states have now resued and said the Affordable Care Act is now unconstitutional, according to John Roberts' views, because the individual mandate now collects no money. A tax, by definition, collects money. It can't be a tax. It's now uh, a regulation, so strike down the whole law. And uh, that made it all the way to the Supreme Court. It looks like, from the oral arguments that were just recently held, that uh, there's a decent chance that the individual mandate might get struck down this time. But what uh, the, the, what the states the, and re, the Republican Republicans that are they're pushing this really want is for the rest of the law to be struck down with it. And it looks like what the court will do is what's called severability. And what that means is some parts of laws sometimes can be declared unconstitutional, but taken out of the law and the rest of the law stands. And that looks like what might happen here. And it's it's become a very uh, interesting uh, instance about how do you determine what Congress wants? Because the original Congress said we have to have the original the individual mandate to make this financially work, to offer things like covering pre-existing conditions, et cetera, et cetera. The Congress that passed the new bill, basically by making it zero, seemed to say we don't really need this for the law to survive. And I think uh, at least a majority of the court is likely to take that into account and say, well, the most recent expression of Congress's will is that um, the rest of the law can survive without this. So what could end up happening is the individual mandate finally goes down, but the rest of the Affordable Care Act remains. And we'll see if this becomes the last litigation on this or not. Uh, obviously, because I had to give all that back history, the history of the legal challenges to the Affordable Care Act have now become very long and extended. And this is not going away either. And we're going to have a robust conversation about health care and, uh, and how people have access to it and how it is paid for, um, particularly if we do, in fact, make a transition 
to a Biden presidency. Um, so let's uh, let's pivot. Uh, Thanksgiving is nine days away, I think. Might be eight days away now. Seven, eight, nine. Yeah, whatever. So nine. It's next Thursday. It's a week from Thursday. I'm so bad at math. Okay. So I'm a I political count it on scientist my that doesn't count. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah, I could count it on my fingers, but it's a week from Thursday. Um, let's talk about Thanksgiving uh, and the history of America. Where did this all start? Who Who issued the first Thanksgiving proclamation? The first one under our Constitution was George Washington. He issued it in October of 1789, although at that point it was not an official regular holiday. It was occasional. In fact, there was a gap from 1815 until 1863 where there was no Thanksgiving proclamation. It was Lincoln during the Civil War that made it really an annual holiday. That said, you can even go back much further before the American founding and occasional days of Thanksgiving, in addition to days of fasting and, and, and other things, were very regular. You have ones from the 1670s at least, um, even going back further than that. So it's really a, a tradition almost as old as having uh, uh, as Englishmen being in, in the colonies. Uh, but but under our Constitution, the first one that many look to as sort of the one of the standard for setting it was uh, Washington in, in all in 1789, the first year our Constitution was really operative. OK, do you have it in front of you by any chance? Uh, I, I did pull 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 it up. I thought we might. Could you, we might would you indulge me? About... Would you indulge me by simply reading the first paragraph? Absolutely. Great. All right. It's. Um, Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me, quote, to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. And then there's a couple of more paragraphs um, that go on from there. I'm going to encourage people to read the whole thing. I would just like to reflect for a moment, Adam, about that uh, on that first paragraph. Um, the, the, the first president of the United States under the Constitution um, is saying here that he's stipulating as if these are things that everybody would agree with. There's no question about these things. These whereases are the basis of of the conversation. Um, whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and to humbly implore his protection and favor. Um, that does not sound like the separation of church and state that people argue for today. No, and, and I will say that this is, I think, bolstered by the fact that Congress basically seconded him in the quote he gives. So it was really not just one man. It was two our two elected branches of government. And no, I, and, 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 and these are the same, this is the same Congress that passes the First Amendment into, uh, uh, that passes the, 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 the text that people look to for separation of church and state. And I think the difference here is that there is a difference between separation of the institutions of the church and politics, 
or political institutions and the distinction and the separation of religion or theology from public life. And the founders and even before them were dedicated to the idea that the that these are two distinct institutions that should not dictate to each other in some sort of ruling fashion, meaning the, the state and the church. They were not in any way, shape or form, even the ones that were less uh, theologically orthodox, never did they think that um, the the necessities of public life, the need for virtue, the need for grace, the need for mercy, the need for uh, all these things, they meant that we that they believed that meant that we needed God in public life, and that all nations as political entities were ruled by God, just as the not in the same way, but also as the church is ruled by God. God is the author of history; He is sovereign over history, and that nations need to acknowledge that. Uh, thinking of uh, Psalm two, where it says to the rulers to kiss the sun, uh, and people say, you know, interpreting that throughout history as being Christ. Um, they that this this sentiment is something that said we need to give thanks. We need to acknowledge God, and that uh, nations that do not do so are actually in error to, 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 to fall away from that. Adam, thank you. Uh, happy Thanksgiving. We'll talk to you um, after, after the Thanksgiving holiday, but wanted to have this opportunity to talk with you today um, about the nature of giving thanks in the history of America. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you all. Happy Thanksgiving out there. Likewise. All right, we'll be right back. So the very first president of the United States under our constitutional form of government, George Washington, uh, commended to all of us, recommended to all of us the assignment uh, of a day that we would set aside for Thanksgiving and prayer, that we would observe uh, and acknowledge with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God. So among those signal favors of Almighty God, uh, the president chose to uh, start the list off by acknowledging that it is God who gives us the opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government um, for our safety and happiness. Let's uh, be sure that we start our thanksgiving and our giving of thanks even this day um, with the acknowledgement that we are a people blessed to live where we live under the form of government that we have and that we are responsible unto it. Um, All right, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.